want us to return this morning to our study of the book of Romans. Having the holidays now just past us, I'm sure that we still have visitors with us. It's great to have you here. We're thankful that over the holidays we get visitors, and for the sake of some of you that we may have, I I just want to take a moment this morning to let you know what we've been studying. We've been studying, obviously, the book of Romans, and from time to time someone will approach me and ask me, why do we here at this church, or why do I as a pastor, move so slowly through a certain book or a certain passage? And I think it's a good question, and I believe that it is an appropriate question, uh, particularly for me to answer this morning as we begin this study. And it may also be something that you've been wondering, for those of you who have been here for some time, especially been here in our study of the book of Romans, since after four messages, we're still in chapter 2. Why are we still only halfway through this chapter, you may be saying to yourself? Well, first off, I can assure you that I personally do not have some insatiable desire to be heard or to speak. While it's true that there is a whole lot to say, I do not spend a whole great amount of time in my study time in a text with the purpose of making sure that there are a lot of opportunities to speak. There's truly only one thing that drives me, really, as I think about a text whenever I spend time in it, and that is to make sure that what is brought to us is not what I have to say or what I want to say or that I am heard, but rather that the explicit purpose of what is said and what is heard is exactly what God has said and what he means by what he said. God has, by his grace, given us his word. We've talked a lot about it. We've sung a lot about it even this morning, and it is his word that we must hear. What we have in... The scriptures are not words from some speaker, from some lecturer. I remember years ago someone said to me, well, that was a nice homily after I preached something. The words of the scriptures are not a homily. They are not a speech. They are not words of a speaker. What we have is the words of God, and what his word means is what it has meant from all ages, throughout all ages, and it is to mean to us what it has meant throughout all the ages. And we, as under-shepherds of God, as the leaders in this church, we have an awe-aspiring task to bring before us God's Word every single Lord's Day. It really doesn't matter whether we're teaching in a class or whether we're preaching. His word, then, is to be clear to us. That's really the task. We must take our time, then, to go through it so that it is clear. Oftentimes, we'll tell the men when we have our men's study and we're talking about hermeneutics, the the, the most important thing here is clarity. You have to be clear. And clarity is hard. So that's the first reason, clarity. But there's a second reason. There's another reason that we take our time in the study of God's word, and it is this. It is the Word of God 
that equips us for the work of the ministry. Nothing else will do that. Hanging out with each other, spending time in each other's homes, making good meals for one another, having good chats with one another, reading good books about the Word of God. None of that equips us for the work of the ministry. What equips us for the work of the ministry is the Word of God. In fact, to turn for just a moment as we begin our time this morning, and this is just, I think, a necessary introduction for us, turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 3, because this is a very familiar passage to us, and yet it's important for us to hear these things again. 2 Timothy chapter 3, the Apostle Paul is saying to Timothy these very familiar words beginning in verse 16 and 17. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Now, if there ever was a mandate for us to go slowly through Scripture, that would be it. We cannot be prepared for the work of the ministry. We cannot be adequate or equipped for whatever comes our way unless we take our time with the one who outfits us for the task. This is what Paul is telling Timothy. Timothy, stick to the only thing that will equip God's people and take your time with it. In fact, that's what he tells him in chapter 4 in verse 2. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. You preach the word, Timothy. That's what you do. That's the book. That's the task. You you preach the word of God. Don't preach the quips of men. Don't preach the, the national news headlines. Don't preach that kind of nonsense. Preach the word. You do it all the time. You do it when it's popular, when it's not popular. And you do it with great patience and instruction. Why? Why tell Timothy that? Because it's the only thing that will equip us as the children of God for the work of ministry. The only thing. If you were taking classes to learn how to jump out of an airplane, why anyone would do that, I don't know. But if you were doing that, you would ensure that you took your time to learn every detail you had to learn, especially when it came to the equipment phase of the class. You would make sure that your equipment was exactly what you needed, lest when you jump out of the airplane it doesn't work as you need it and you find your demise at the bottom. So some still might be saying, okay, I understand that. I understand, but what does that have to do with our time in the book of Romans? Particularly chapter 2. Why are we spending so much time in chapter 2? It's all about judgment. And isn't it true that we as Christians are not going to face judgment? Why spend so much time here if that's the reality? Because 
because what we find Paul doing in the book of Romans is exactly what he exhorted Timothy to do after he was going to be gone. What was that? After Paul was going to leave off the scene, what was he exhorting Timothy to do? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. This is exactly what Paul's doing in Romans. This is exactly why we are slowly proceeding through the book of Romans. So we are adequate. So we are equipped for our work of ministry. We've learned this already. We've... We've learned it as we've gone through this. The Bible is not primarily a book for unbelievers. The Bible is not primarily a book for unbelievers. The Bible is primarily a book for equipping believers for ministry. That's what it's for. It is a book given to us, His children, God's children, given to us by God as a revelation of Himself It includes the plan of redemption, how someone can be saved, and all of that is so that we might understand both the mind of God and the heart of man. We have the truth about everything God has told us about himself and about us. And so when we approach the book of Romans and we gain an understanding of man and the mind of God concerning salvation, Those truths ought to be equipping us in our minds. They ought to be equipping us in our practical lives with a better understanding of God and a better understanding of man so that we can then engage humanity with the truths that we now know. You see? This is what Paul's desire is for us in the book of Romans. That's why he says he is equipping saints. He's writing to Saints, remember that back in chapter 1 and verse 7? To all, I'm writing this, to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called saints, the Hagias, called the Holy Ones, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He is writing to saints. In other words, I'm not writing to unbelievers. This isn't, this isn't the primary purpose of my letter. I'm not writing to those who don't know God. I'm writing to those who are believers. This isn't for the unchurched. I'm writing this for the churched. For the people who come to the, to the church every day. I'm writing to those who have been called by God in Christ Jesus to gospel ministry. I don't know if you ever think of your life like that, but you ought to. You are one who is called by God. If you know Christ by faith, you've been called to gospel ministry. Yes, you have a vocation potentially outside of the church, but you are called by your spiritual calling to gospel ministry. Each and every one of us could replace Paul's name in verse 1 with our name. We have been called to gospel ministry. Each one of us has been given By God, through Christ, the same mission. We have the same mission. We have not been given the same gifts by the Spirit, but we have been given the same mission. We have been all called to the same ministry. We have been called to the gospel ministry. It's not just the work of the elders. It's not just the work of the pastors. It's not just the work of the deacons. We are all 
apostles with a little a. They're all sent ones, messengers, sent, each one of us. And oftentimes I think we forget this. Oftentimes I think as Christians we we get so comfortable in our Christianity that we forget this. We, we faithfully come and we faithfully hear the Word of God taught week in and week out it, it, where we go to church. We go to Sunday school, hopefully. We come because we have such a desire to hear the Word of God. We hear what's taught there. We even go home and we pull good books off our shelf that we have been encouraged to read and we read those authors and we turn on the radio even today and we hear other preachers preach. And too often we go away from those times asking ourselves this question, what does that have to do with me? Great message, preacher, but what does that have to do with me? Nice book, but what does it have to do with me? What you say sounds great. I know it's from the Bible. But what does that truth have to do with me in a practical way? Maybe you've been asking that as we've been studying Romans. It's all about judgment. What's it got to do with me? I'm a Christian. That's really what's behind the question. How does this apply to me? Maybe that's what you've been asking in your mind as we have been spending our time here week in and week out in this section of Scripture. What does it have to do with me? Surely this doesn't seem to be saying much to me. From verse 18 of chapter 1 all the way through verse 20 of chapter 3. I mean, that's a pretty large section. That's a section on judgment. I mean, this is Paul's indictment to every human that ever lived on judgment. We know, as Christians, in Christ, the wrath of God in the sense of judgment in that kind of way is past, right? Christ took that on. God's wrath is poured out upon Christ. So why spend so much time on this? Can't we just read it and move on? The answer to those questions is simply this. It is equipping us for the gospel ministry equipping us with answers for some of those challenging questions that an unsaved world asks. It's equipping us with an understanding of what the heart of mankind is like. We can go into a gospel opportunity with an understanding that a person comes knowing the truth because God has placed that into their heart, and yet they're going to reject it because they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. We go with that information. We already know the answer. We already know what they're going to do. So it's equipping us. It's equipping us with the answers to why what unsaved men believe will allow them to stand before a holy God not guilty, why that won't work. Equips us with an understanding of that. Equips us with a defense for the hope that lies within us. Equips us with a biblical worldview. We can look at the world with a biblical perspective and have our biblical eyes on and know exactly why the world is the way it is. And so we as Christians, you and I, we are under an obligation as Christians, just as Paul, to preach the gospel. Why? 
First, because we are children of God, and he has left us here for a time in order to do that, we will not do that in glory. To not do that is just disobedience. But secondly, we preach the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. Nothing else saves. It doesn't matter if you grew up in a home where the heritage was going to church or if you've never heard of Jesus Christ the only righteousness that will work before God is the righteousness of Jesus Christ and it is the gospel that tells us that it is the gospel that gives us that Christ is the central focus of the gospel this is why Paul spends get this almost 15% of this entire book on judgment We are being equipped for gospel ministry and we need to understand how to engage all men. Whether they are churched or unchurched, we need to be adequate. Adequate means able to meet the demands. That's what that's what that word means in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Able to meet the demand. We need to be able to meet the demand. The demand of what? The demand by way of questions from mankind. The demand by way of answers to those questions that they are asking. The arguments they are giving as we engage the world in our mission, the gospel. So Paul is equipping us as saints. He's equipping us with a biblical worldview. And within that worldview, we need to know that all men stand guilty before God without Christ. We need to be able to answer their questions. Why, if I'm a good person, I'm guilty? It doesn't matter if you're talking to an unchurched pagan who has never had any access to the Word of God or if you are one who has had access to the Word of God all your life. All men are on equal ground before God and before Christ. We're all on the same starting line. Why? Because we learned two weeks ago God is not partial. God is not partial partial to any man God's judgment is just God's judgment is right because God is not partial to any man it says in verse 11 there is no partiality with God this was the fourth reason why God's judgment is just God is not partial you will be held accountable as men and women if you're not in Christ God will Look at you and judge you according to your deeds, your works. And in Christ you will be rewarded for those things that are God-honoring. The rest is wood, hay, and stubble and will be burned up, as it tells us in Paul's letters to the Corinthian believers. Why? Because God favors no man. He gives no favoritism to men when it comes to their works. That's what Paul is trying to get across to the saints in Rome. He's equipping them. Why? Because they're going to encounter people who actually believe that because they are good people, who actually believe that because they are on a moral standard that's higher than the rest of the world around them, and Paul specifically because they are Jews, because they've been circumcised according to the 
Mosaic law, which was the law of God, that they will escape the judgment of God. They're going to encounter people like that. And so Paul wants them to get it settled in their minds. Paul wants us to have it settled in our minds so that we might be equipped with a sound doctrine, a sound defense. That all men are on equal ground before God. You cannot say, my pile is bigger than your pile, therefore I'm okay before God. It doesn't matter if you have a religious life or a non-religious life. In Paul's day, those who were religious were the Jews. They believed they had a special privilege before God. They believed that they had a special place, a certain exempt status, if you will, when it came to the judgment of God, when God would judge men. Paul's desire is that they know for sure that they are lost, even though even though they've had the privilege of having God's written word, having the Scriptures. Even though they've had the Scriptures, they too are guilty before God. I want to just look at how Paul lays this out for us in Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 17. Notice what he says. But, that's the contrast from verses 1 to 16 in the reality that the Gentiles are guilty. There's There's no partiality with God, right? But, if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law, and boast in God, and know His will, and approve the things that are essential. Why? Because you're instructed out of the law. And you're confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law through breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. But if you're a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. If therefore the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And will not he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who, though having the letter of the law and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. Now, Paul has already spoken, as I said, about the Gentiles, about the non-Jew or the 
non-religious, if you will. You can kind of put them in those categories if you like. The Jews being the religious, the others being non-religious. When they stand before God, the non-religious, they cannot cry, unfair, God, I didn't know. I didn't know what you were telling me. They cannot use that argument that they did not know the law of God, even if they've never seen the Scriptures. That argument will not fly before God. Why? Because God, by His graciousness, has written His divine law on the hearts of all men. It doesn't matter, religious or non-religious. It is there. Chapter 1 clearly showed us that. The very fact that man is self-regulating in life, that man decides between right and wrong. It doesn't matter what society you go to. They know a right and wrong. They live a right and wrong. They live a sense of morality through their very acts. They know that. And since man does that, God has put that there and God will hold them accountable to that law and He has graciously given it to them so that they might turn from sin to God. to the Jew of Paul's day, there was a sense of double culpability. There was a sense in which they were not only culpable for that reality, but they were also culpable because they had the law of God through Moses and the prophets. They had the written word of God. God will hold all who have the written word accountable to that word. Think about that this morning as you sit there with that Bible on your lap. As you sit there with it in your home, God will hold you accountable to it. This is Paul's entire argument to his Jewish brothers and sisters in verses 17 through 29. Paul begins by saying that, but if you bear the name Jew, you could insert you bear the name religious you might even say if you bear the name quote unquote because it's been so abused today if you bear the name Christian he's making an emphasis upon the reality that although there is responsibility before God for all men all of us have to stand before a holy God there is increased responsibility for those who have the word of God There is an increased responsibility for those who have the Scriptures. No other nation in Paul's day had the written Word of God. It was not given to anyone else other than the Jews at that time. In fact, Moses even said to the Hebrew people that they would be the envy of other nations because they had God's Word. Here's what he said in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Surely... This is what God said through Moses. Surely I have taught you statutes and judgments just as the Lord my God commanded me that you should act according to them in the land which you go to possess. Therefore, be careful to observe them for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes. And they will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. You see, when you do the Word of God, Moses is saying, the people and the nations around you are going to look at you and go, man, they're a special people. 
They have the Word of God. They are wise. They are understanding. Look at them do that. So the Jews then had been told by Moses of all that God required of man. They knew that they were the earthly recipients and guardians of the statutes and commands of God. They knew that. They knew that they did not need to use the world's ways. They knew that they did not need to put into practice any of the futile philosophies that men dream up. They knew that. They had the Word of God. Paul says that they, the Jews of his day, notice verse 1, they rely upon the law. If you bear the name Jew and you rely upon the law, could think of the law as just the, the scriptures. If you bear the name Christian and you rely upon the Bible, if you bear the name Jew and you rely upon the law, and it's right here where the problem often lies. This false sense of security before God. That's what the Jews had. It comes when when a person relies upon the mere outward possession of the words of God for their justification before God. This was what the Jews relied on. You bear the name Jew, oh, we have the word of God. We're justified before God because he gave us his word rather than the righteousness that the law reveals. Righteousness found only in Jesus Christ, the only means of justification before God, His righteousness. The Jews had begun to carry themselves with this false sense of security because they had trusted in several things other than God Himself. Paul is lining that out if you bear the name Jew. They they trusted in their heritage. I'm a Jew. Paul even says that in Philippians. If anyone has a boast in anything other than in these kinds of things, these works of the day, I for more. I'm a Jew of Jews. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. In other words, there were Jews, the 12 tribes of, uh, of, of uh, the nation of Israel, right? And yet the tribe of Benjamin was the special tribe. Paul says, I, I'm not only a Jew, but I'm a Jew of Jews. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm of the tribe. My family heritage was huge. The, every Jew had that idea that my heritage is enough. They were the chosen people of God. Paul says they rested in that fact. If you bear the name Jew, meaning your heritage, you think you're okay before God. We, we do this. We do this all the time. Bring our children to church. Raise them up under the name of God or the guise of evangelical Christianity church. And our children oftentimes go away thinking that they're okay. After all, I carried a Bible. My parents gave me a Bible when I was five. I carried it to church all the time. I, I went to church. They're not saved at all. They rest in their heritage. It's a great privilege. The Jews, it was a great privilege to be a Jew. It would not save you. 
Because of that, they taught themselves that they were better than others. But they, therefore, were exempt from judgment because they were a Jew. I think in the Old Testament, Jonah is a perfect example of the Jewish attitude toward the non-Jew, the Ninevites. Remember, Jonah is sent by God as the prophet of God go and preach to the Ninevites, and Jonah did not want to do it. The Ninevites were wicked people. He didn't want to go there. In fact, Jonah, through the circumstances that God brings as he gets tossed off the boat into the middle of the ocean, swallowed by a great fish, spit up on the beach where he's supposed to go, finally goes, preaches to the Ninevites, and then he's mad because they repent. He's mad at God. I knew you would do that. That's the perfect attitude. Jonah wanted God to judge them. Jonah wanted God breathe fire down upon these wicked people. Why? Because Jonah considered them to be worse than himself before God. This is what the Jews thought. This is oftentimes what we think. Spiritual pride. Their pride and their position blinded them. It lulled them into this false sense of security about themselves before God himself. But they also had a false sense of security because of their own religious knowledge. Their own religious knowledge and their activities. Notice what he says. You rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential because you're instructed out of the law, and you're confident that you yourselves are a guide to the blind and a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. You see, the law, the Mosaic law, along with the Psalms and the Proverbs and the writings of the prophets. See, the Old Testament gave them all that they needed, all of God's revelation up until the time of the New Testament. They had the mind of God. They knew what God wanted. They they knew how to, to make discerning decisions. They knew what was the right direction to take. And they even considered themselves as those who had the answers. God had revealed it to them. He gave them His promises. He had given them His commands. He had given them instruction on how they were to worship. Given them instruction on the moral standards and the civil standards by which they should live. And He showed them His plan of redemption. They had it all. Paul says they knew His will. They knew His will. Because of that, they not only knew right from wrong, they could tell what was the best way to go. That's what the word approve means there. They approved of the things. They, they could tell what the best track was to go. They were taught continually from the law. And because of that, verse 20 says, they taught others. They were a corrector of the foolish Teachers of the immature, they considered themselves to be the most religiously wise people of the day. 
You want to know God, you want to know the right way, you want to do the right thing, you want to consider yourself to be right before God, follow us. So much so that Paul describes them here with four pictures. He says you're a guide to the blind. Implication, we'll show you the way to go. You're blind, we can see. That was the idea of themselves, but they were blind too. He says, you're light in a dark place. You think you're light to those who are in dark. Implication, we have clarity on all issues. God has given us clarity on all things because we have the light. And that's true. The Scriptures are that. That light is to lead others to God. Not to them. Paul says, you're a corrector of the foolish, you think. Implication, not only can you answer all the questions about religion and life, but you think you're not foolish at all yourselves. You're the teachers of the immature. The Gentile world is just a blind, dark, foolish, immature place. They need to be instructed by you. That's what Paul says. That's how you think. What an indictment. Paul follows that with, with, with these five indicting questions in verses 21 to 23. You who teach another, do you, do you teach yourself? You who preach that one shouldn't steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who have our idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, through your breaking of the law, do you dishonor God? You see, if we were going to sum that up in just one small little sentence, maybe this would be the sentence we need to give it. Right doctrine ought to equal right practice. You got all the right doctrine... You got all the wrong practice. Right doctrine ought to equal right practice. In other words, with great privilege comes great condemnation when the law is broken. If you're going to live by the law, if you're going to say the law is it, if you're going to say, listen, if we do things the way God wants us to, we'll be justified. If that's the reality of how you're going to live, then when you break it, watch out. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. When any of us say we love God... Yet we willfully do not keep his commandments. You know what God says? Here's what God says through the Apostle Paul. Whether it's a Jew, whether it's a Christian, whether it's somebody else claiming that they can stand before God by their works. Here's what he says. The name of God is is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. 
Now, Paul, of course, is speaking to the Jews, saying you can't stand before God living by the law. You'll never be able to stand before God living by the law. And when you say you're living by the law, yet you fail the law, the Gentiles just look at you and laugh. And God is mocked because the God you're proclaiming and the God who's given you the law, you're not even following yourself. And they're saying, I don't need a God like that. God is blasphemed among the other nations because of you. And yet at the same time, if we love Jesus Christ, as the Scriptures say, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep his commandments. And yet when we willfully do not keep his commandments, guess what? The world watches us and blasphemes our God because of our disobedience. Far too often we see how close we can get to the line where sinfulness in our mind begins. Far too often we ask the question, what's wrong with it, rather than what's right with it and glorifying God by it. Say, so what are the implications for us? What are the implications for us? We're not Jews. Some of us might be Jews. Most of us are not Jews. Each of us has been given a great spiritual light through the Word of God. You have the Word of God. I have the Word of God. But it isn't enough for us to just have it. It isn't enough for us every week to go, Oh, church today, better blow the dust off where my Bible's been sitting all week. It isn't enough for us to have it and to boast in having it and say, oh, I have my Bible and to proclaim that we know God and go around telling others, oh, how much we know God and how much we love God and tell others about the joy of salvation in Jesus Christ, pointing out their sins all the time. It's not enough for us to to think like that. We're unwilling to practice obedience to the very words that we have right in front of us. One of the reasons why God is so justified in his judgment, we talked about right out of the gate, because of flagrant hypocrisy. And yet, right here, Paul is uncovering the greatest flagrancy of hypocrisy ever. I mean, let's just read it this way. But if you bear the name Christian and rely upon the Bible and boast in God and know his will and you approve the things that are essential being instructed by the Scriptures, and you're confident that you yourself can can help others who cannot see, and and you yourself are a light to those who are in darkness, and that you yourself are, are one who can bring somebody else out who's in a wrong place because you can correct the foolish. You're, you're a teacher of those who aren't as mature as you, having because in the law you have the knowledge of the truth. Yet, Don't obey it. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. You see, when we as believers fall into sin, especially willingly, testimony about God causes the world to ridicule the very God we say we serve. It would really be better if we had never claimed a relationship with God at all. 
See, the Jew relied upon his privilege, relied upon his upbringing as security before God. We dare not be lulled into the same deception. Right doctrine doesn't save anybody. It's great. It's great to have right doctrine, but right doctrine saves no one. What saves is faith in Jesus Christ alone. When faith is real, when it's real, it will always produce in those who truly believe, it will always produce right practice. Not perfect practice, right practice. Always. When that happens, God's glorified rather than blasphemed. Guess where we get to come back to next time? Right here in chapter 2. As God equips us for the work of gospel ministry. Let's pray together. Father, a bit overwhelmed this morning. fear, Lord, that far too often your name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of my very life. Thank you for your word. For the soothing comfort that it is to the soul. You're such a gracious God. Tell us exactly what we need. Hold us accountable to the very things that you have equipped us to be. Always seeing us through our Savior Jesus Christ. For we stand in grace. Lord, Forgive us for abusing that grace. For living in ways that do not allow your life, your very glory to be seen in us. Help us live circumspect, recognize that before you, everything is laid bare. You see it all. Lord, we love you for your forgiving heart, your caring, loving kindness, and the joy that we have in knowing that you are our Father, even when you tell us the difficult things. For we stand in grace and we are grateful for it. Because of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray.